Hi, I'm Andy Spain, and this is my podcast, Conversations with New Zealand Photographers. This week, I'm talking to David Cook, the photography lecturer from Massey University, most known for his amazing book, Lake of Coal, The Disappearance of a Mining Town. David did his fine arts degree in Christchurch and then moved to Hamilton to the Waikato Museum. Whilst starting there, he was given the opportunity to document and capture a number of projects. The one that he was mainly drawn to was the Rotawero Mining Township. And for the next 20 years or so, he documented the change in its use from being um, a mine where people had to go underground and a small community lived around it till eventually the houses were removed and it became an open cast mine and then eventually all mining activities um, ceased so he was able over this long period of time to produce an incredible document social document um, which told the story of everyday working class people in New Zealand he's a very inspirational thoughtful humble guy and it comes across very much in his work and obviously in his interactions with the people he met doing this project it's one of those books that you might just overlook but spending some time looking through it um, it really is an amazing uh, social history and one that should be noted more in photography in New Zealand so here is David um, opening the podcast with possibly the best opening line I could have hoped for I met up with him at Massey University and we found a nice quiet recording studio Thanks. Bye. Photography is something that took me by surprise. It's something that just crept up on me. I'm not that kind of person who uh, grew up with a camera in my hands as a, a little child. And I, I, I love drawing. I love making images and getting lost in the world and discovering things and collecting things. But um, I think you could maybe at one stage could have called me a technophobe. I'm not that great with mechanics. And uh, I looked at cameras and I thought, that's not for me. But I knew I had a hankering for the world of art. So after leaving high school in Christchurch in the 1980s, I had this idea of I really wanted to pursue the world of science because I knew nothing else. I knew there were no other precedents in my family who really took up a career in the arts, although I had a passion for the arts. I went to art school at the School of Fine Arts at Canterbury University and um, eventually after trying my hand at science at university and just throwing that in and thinking, no, this is not for me. So I went to art school thinking... Yes, yes, I want to become a painter or a graphic designer, but Glenn Bush, who was lecturing there at the time, told me I needed to use a camera in my first year for an assignment. So I reluctantly took up that technology and he uh, showed me around the dark room. I rapidly learnt these new skills and I was hooked from the very first film I loaded because I, I just saw that potential for storytelling and engaging with people and engaging with the world. I took some photographs of a great uncle of mine, Uncle Herb, um, sitting on a 
chair uh, laughing his head off. And I, I just saw the animation in those images. That was virtually the first image I'd ever taken. And uh, I was hooked from that moment onwards. And uh, that's the beginning of my journey. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you can't... Hard to pinpoint the nature of why you're hooked because you could have been hooked and picking up that pencil and sketching or picking up that paintbrush and and painting. It's funny that something gels, which I guess is lots of deep psychological reasons. <laughs> yeah, I could have picked up a pencil or a paintbrush. I think maybe I lacked the patience, but I loved. Uh, you know, photography is a tool for exploring the world, a, a, an excuse to go wandering, an excuse to get lost. It's an instrument you could take into the world to collect things and bring back and, and look at what you've engaged with. And also, you know, I was an intensely shy and introspective person, um, more so in those days. And to have a camera meant that I could go places and engage with the world really purposefully. So I think it really brought me out of myself. Yeah, it gave me confidence and a reason to be places and uh, I guess a reason to be engaged socially and discovering people and places. Yeah. In my early days of um, taking up the camera at this um, at the university, um, doing my Diploma of Fine Arts, um, we were asked to kind of look at the world around us. So I looked at my Salvation Army roots and my, my family and uh, engaged with the, really deeply with the, this idea of, of the Salvation Army. So it travelled around New Zealand, um, looked at the Salvation Army Church, social services. Um, really, I really way, I, mean, I think I raced ahead of myself and I'm really frightened looking back now thinking how I engaged with really tough kind of stuff really early on in such a naive way, but I just threw myself into it and started photographing and meeting people in addiction um, services, um, emergency homes, um, children's homes. Um, it was a real time of discovery for me. Yeah. So if we bring it around to those books, when I came to take them out of the library here, they were all in the history section rather than the photography section, which I found quite an interesting, I guess it was within the arts department, but still an interesting way that they've been categorised. Um, so where do you position your practice? You know, I love that the books have ended up elsewhere to the photography section because I, I see my work not so much as a work about me as an artist or a portfolio of my work. You know, I see these books or projects as an engagement with the world, storytelling. I want to connect with a, a group of people that go beyond the um, kind of arts audience or beyond a kind of small boutique photo book collector audience. So Oh, I think it's to me that's a marker of success that those books are now in the history section or uh, other sections. Yeah, I feel that's very true, especially when you look through Lake of Coal. I mean, it was a mammoth project, Lake of Coal, with goodness knows how many thousands and thousands of images you must have taken, but with maps and texts and so many different pieces of information within it. And can you draw an outline of, of the book, um, of the project, I suppose, um, it was a 20-year project for you. How, how um, Can you say something about it so everyone can understand what we're talking about, really? Yeah, it was a 20-year project, and, and it continues. But, you know, when I started that project, I had no idea it was 20 years. <laughs> I 
Yeah. I uh, left my hometown of Christchurch looking for a job after graduating from art school and uh, had heard through Bruce Conyu that the Waikato Museum in Hamilton was looking for a photographer on a temporary government-funded job just to do some documentary work. And um, the government, through these PEP scheme jobs, was just trying to soak up a bit of unemployment and that people all over the place were inventing jobs. So I said, yes, I'm coming. I knew nothing about Hamilton, had never been there before. But I positioned myself in Hamilton, met an amazing bunch of people in the museum world, and I discovered that I love museums. I love the idea of working with people who are curators and historians and you know really radically thinking about engaging with the world and uh, the thing I learned from Rose Young was this idea of not just fossicking around and salvaging bits of the past but being present in the here and now and learning about making history with what's happening so yeah that, that was perfect for somebody with a camera going out I, I could go out there and engage with the world in the here and now make photographs of things that are happening. And one of the big things happening in the Waikato at that time was energy developments. There was the Think Big um, projects of the 1980s. There was the Huntley Power Station. There were coal mines being developed and opened up. There was no talk or very little talk about climate change. Hadn't even heard of it those days, but coal was big. You know, it was about energy. It was about... um, Digging up coal to make, for the steel plant at Glenbrook for um, for the uh, for the grid for electricity for our homes we were dependent on it. So I went there and a, a period of time the the Waikato Museum had invented this year long project which was all about um, working as a documentary photographer, looking closely at the impact of energy developments. So it was a it's a Big brief, there were some specific things, but I was also given a lot of trust to go out there and explore. So there are a number of things happening, but the place that I magnetically got drawn to time and time again, driving out from Hamilton, a 40-kilometre trip up north, was this place called Rotowaro, which um, at that point, and still is, the the largest earth-moving operation in the North Island, um, the centre of the coal mining industry in the North Island, uh, I mean, it's the kind of place that you drive along State Highway 1 and never have an idea that sort of nine kilometres to the west is this huge mining area. But, you know, I, I was forced to take that detour off the highway, uh, travel into these weird and wonderful places with little mining villages. And from that moment onwards, I just knew I was onto something really, really big. It was initially a year-long project making photographs for the Waikato Museum of... Um, people, places, environment in the mining industry, um, going underground, meeting people, um, living in mining villages, going along to little country and western dances, going along to the school, to the hangi, to just joining in community life and seeing what's happening. And did you, um, was that a full-time thing from the museum or were you carrying on your other photography duties at the museum and went off when you had the opportunity? It was the most fantastic opportunity for a new graduate. It was full-time. Wow. Working on these kind of projects and learning from the photographers, the photographer Case Springers at the the Waikato Museum. It was a great privilege just to 
be there at that time. And that you've kind of answered another question I had. I mean, the book, when anyone sees it and picks it up, is so full of information, conversations you've had with people, maps of the area, you know, changing maps of the area when the area has changed. And the photos don't dominate remotely. They feel very balanced with your own personal handwritten journals and all that kind of thing. There's an overwhelming sense of authenticity in the book. And I suppose from what you've said about the museum teaching you the importance of recording and creating history, really, that kind of explains why you've included all those things. Because for you, it was more than just putting a picture in that was... You know, this is a picture of something that's going on related to energy. It was throwing all that information in, so it's a vital document for generations to come. Is that a good reading of it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the museum experience, you know, I'm surrounded by artefacts and like a social history, history curator like Rose Young, who was um, into kind of looking at multivocal kind of representations, how you can tell a story from not just one angle, but bring in different yeah. angles and I mean and think re- being with some really politically conscious people who are all about representing the underrepresented voices that you know we have in culture and in storytelling in the news so you know going in there and, and hanging out with the workers and um, finding out what it's really like experientially being like an ethnographer being, being there at as a participant observer and spending deep time in a place rather than just whizzing in and whizzing out like a sort of quick fire photojournalist. So that was what I learnt at the museum and I was surrounded by that. So I started noticing that and suggested to our curators that why can't I collect some material too? So we we made some agreements to visit some of the mines that were closing down the underground mines and we collected material from these mines, signs and equipment and oh, wow. breathing gear and apparatus. and So is all that that's kept at the museum? That's kept at the Waikato Museum. Fantastic. Yeah, so it was... And uh, I started getting into oral histories. They suggested I do that. Well, they suggested I, I, I get the locals to do that. So I, I talked with the guy Lyle Yarrow about interviewing people too, just building up a rich, rich reserve of material for which later on we could turn into something like a book or an exhibition yeah um i particularly like the way that it the um the book contains a scan or a photograph of your handwritten journal to, it kind of adds that even greater authenticity that it's handwritten rather than someone's retyped out the text for the book you know it feels so immediate when you see you clearly scribbling something down after you've just had a conversation or whatever it is yeah, and that was deliberate. You know, I I found out that I, I you know, as time went by, the things that I really that re- really resonated with me, the kind of storytelling, with those kind of stories where you really connect with the voice of, of the photographer. It's not just an objective story. You're kind of you're following in their footsteps or joining, uh, uh, getting this understanding of what it's like from their point of view too, and also acknowledging that the photographer has. Um, it's a big part of the storytelling. Not trying to hide behind something and pretend this is some sort of objective thing, but just acknowledging, you know, the subjectivity of that photographer's place. So I included my diaries, and even when I 
put oral histories in a book where I interview people. I include my voice in there too because I want to be just acknowledge my presence because, you know, me being there, um, I became part of the history of the place, you know, um, and yeah. people almost started to expect me turning up at <laughs> events. You know? it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it became deeply part of my consciousness. So, yeah, I wanted to weave that personal side through it too and, and not only my personal kind of um, take on things but also the voices of children too and you know so I de- deliberately went to the local primary school and as a documentary maker I thought no I'm not just making my own photographs here let's give these children a chance to tell a story through image making so I talked to the principal Jeff Freeman and said can we have your children creating little visual projects about what it's like to live in a turbulent mining village, a village that's that's destined to close down in a few years? Because here were 400 people in this little village moments before the, the place closed down. The mining industry had sites on that piece of land and wanted to uh, turn it into a a big open-cast mine. So, you know, what what does that mean for a child having grown up in a place, their hometown, and now they're forced to move off to Huntley or somewhere else, who knows where, and now their hometown doesn't even appear on the map anymore. So we had children doing things. where I, I tried to get the um, people in the mining industry representing ideas through interviews and collecting artifacts and things from the mining industry, whether that's advertising, marketing, propaganda or whatever, just bring all sorts of different flavours into this mix. Has, has there been, did you have an exhibition at the Waikato Museum yeah. at that point? After a year's work of work on this project, the first, first fruits of that labour was an exhibition and a very small book and in 1985... Now, that was an exhibition opened at the Waikato Museum in Hamilton. Somebody at the museum had the brainwave of hiring a bus. We took the bus out to Rotowaro and brought a busload of Rotowaro <laughs> people into the opening. Yeah. And we had a great time. We had the Glen Afton Country Music Club um, providing music. And it's a little mining village, nearby mining village, just 10 minutes down the road from Rotowaro. Yeah. So it was a genuinely authentic thing with, um, I think we serve Waikato bitter. And it was it was just just what I wanted. I mean, I think just because this, this was the people's project yes, as much as yeah, mine too. Yeah, yeah. And I think people were kind of proud of that. The book design was a really close collaboration with my friend Jonty Valentine who I'd got to know in Hamilton fantastic graphic designer and we worked together at the Waikato Museum and, and we parted ways and we all went different jobs and said one day we'll work on a book so yeah we, we did that and, and you know it it was a process of backwards and forwards it was a real collaboration it wasn't just me giving him a bunch of stuff and saying make this look good yeah. we there were so many drafts of all shapes and sizes. And John, he was great. He was a provocateur. He would sometimes design stuff that I thought, man, I was not asking for this. This this doesn't work. And then I'd look at it again and think, no, that's great. I, I, I need to have my ideas turned upside down by 
a provocative designer because I just get straight-jacketed in my ideas. There are different ways of telling stories. So we went backwards and forwards and, and came up with this piece. So largely the sequence of the images and how they come together it was my storytelling, but also shaped by that convers- those conversations with Jonty. And there are a few principles that we wanted in the book. And one was this idea of we coming through, echoing through the book as little things that signify the idea of mapping. So mapping's a big thing. And this idea of centres and margins like, was a big thing too. Like here was a place that was central to the mining industry, but the people there felt they were really on the margins because they felt they were getting a real... Bad deal from from um, the turbulence going on. That they the people at Rotawara working in the mining industry had supported the mining industry for decades, and now they were being challenged. We told they had to move out of their village. You know, it was a big deal. Um, One so of the, the things design- that I took was that it was such a as the photographer and and the and the person who collated so much information. It shows a real lack of ego to not put the pictures so forefronted as I thought a lot of photographers might have done basically. Oh yeah. You just you just held it back and it so it so it becomes not just a photo book, but it does become a social history book. And that's, Yeah, that's, I wanted to weave together images, words, artifacts, other people's images. I don't even go to the bother of explaining that this is a photograph by me and this is a photograph by someone else. They're just photographs. Yeah. You know, I don't think you need to get too precious about that. It's a, the storytelling comes first. And the other thing we wanted to do was get multifocal strands or representations going through. So all the way through, you've got different voices. You've got the voices of people. You've got my voice. You've yeah, got these different strands weaving through. So it was a real complex kind of thing. And I, yeah, and, and um, I was just starting to see some fa- fantastic photo books coming through, I think, about... 1999 or so there was Raised by Wolves by Jim Goldberg which very deeply influenced me love the kind of way that he magically wove together photographs texts drawings and he didn't seem to be anxious about explaining where all these voices came from. Sometimes you had to work it out yourself and think, is, how much is this fact? How much is this fiction? But it, it came together to create something mesmerizing. So, yeah, I, I looked at how people could weave complex texts together. So that's where I got my influences. When you came across a conversation, did you, you know, it made, it made me think, are you grabbing the camera or are you grabbing the pen as, you know, as your initial record tool of record, basically, it seems like you must have been doing both constantly. Not um, really. No, it's <laughs> primarily the camera. I'm not the best writer. Some of that happened post um, but photography or, you know, it would be either or. I just can't do both at once. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> I just went along with my you know, just recording equipment, sometimes my camera, but, yeah. It was, and it felt like it wasn't like the text was anchoring the meaning of the images. The text was there in its own right as a another way of documenting what you was in front of you basically mm. just yeah it's very amazing you've you've said um to prove you've, you've to prove it existed i have images which was a lovely way of of saying it and not only now is that you know all about photography in the sense it's a often seen as a moment of death or moment that's disappeared that a photograph brings back to us 
but not only has that moment disappeared, but the whole blooming town's disappeared. So it feels so powerful because of the nature of you looking at these images, knowing that if you went there now, I guess, there's, is there any kind of way of seeing what was... There's nothing, it's just countryside now, is it? It is mostly countryside. After a hundred years of continuous mining at Rotawaro, last year, that's 2017 in September, the Rotawaro Township site was officially closed as a mine site, and now it's just pasture, a couple of little lakes, and Pinus Radiata forestry, with a few roads going around. And that land was returned to Tainui last year after being subject to the Raupatu in the 1860s and later on um, some of the land being acquired by the government through the Public Works Act. So it's had a long turbulent history. If you go back there today you'll see a small shred of evidence of the township. It's an old factory called the Carbonisation Works. Oh yeah, it came up a few times. Yeah, and... There is that little reminder, and it remains there because it's a bit of a toxic waste site and also contested because it's uh, got a um, historic places rating on it too. So, so when I go back, I, I do like to see that little piece of evidence. Say, I mean, Otherwise, I, I'd, I'd find the place unrecognisable. Yeah. I mean, uh, for periods I could go back and um, see shreds of the township there even after it had disappeared, little markers of roads and things but now I do not recognize the place and how do you what's your you know what's your how do you feel what's your relationship with that land I mean I, I was the, the idea of layers and it being you know first of all dug underneath the land and then ripped apart and then put back it's just a very it's a very must be a very strange thing to to know there was all these people living there working underneath and then it's just a yeah it's very strange yeah. Is it emotional for you? I mean, you must have had a very close relationship, but is it more the people, or the space, or the land? It's everything. It's But there's a deep connection there. I don't think I ever chose Rotawaro, but I, 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 <laughs> I was given that place, really, and I keep returning to it. Either I mean, I was there a few weeks ago. I keep returning to it in my dreams and my you know it's it's part of my consciousness now and you know um, some uh, there's one thing about being a, a photographer it, it can be pretty exciting going places exotic places and, and traveling far and wide with the camera and getting stimulated but I I just found out through this experience with this one place over many years that it's it can be equally as enriching and fascinating to spend deep time with one place to go narrow and deep rather than spread yourself so that's what I've trained myself to do to find the significance and everyday things happening at this one place over since 1984 onwards yeah yeah and you know I, I returned there just recently, over the last few months, I've made a couple of trips back to Rotawaro because I think there's just one more final phase I need to work on. And that is, uh, I've been taking photographs of people, mining activities, but now that land has 
the mining has, has completely finished in that spot. It's 100 years of continuous mining, and the land has now returned to Tainui, the iwi, um, Ngāti Fafaki and Ngāti Mahuta, two hapu who, um, who are attached to that land, um, now now have that land. And so I've been going back and um, meeting up with Komatua and people um, associated with the land. I was talking with a man who'd spent 25 years mining underground at Rotowaro who said he hated every day of it but um, wants to talk about his association with what that land means and how they've had to watch uh, the local streams get polluted with phenols and things and uh, and consequently their fishing grounds in Lake Wahi being unfishable and how they've um, had massive displacements and it's been, you know, both a provider of employment and a, a provider of trauma too. Yeah, a bit so a there's a lot of storytelling yeah. to be yeah. told there. So I'm, I'm going back with my uh, sound recording equipment. I'm going to okay. be talking with people and taking more photographs yeah. and maybe making a short film this time for oh, a right. little exhibition at the Waikato Museum. And that, I believe, will be the final chapter, but I don't like to say completely... <laughs>